once we did encounter some challenges, because we were part of your network and because I have an investment counselor, I always felt like I had somewhere to go for an answer. Um, I always felt like I had somebody with more experience than me that I could lean on. And if Sarah didn't know the answer, she got the answer. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is Jason Hartman, your grateful host. Thank you so much for joining me today. Gosh, several things to report on today, but our main topic of the show will be something that we did at our recent Jason Hartman University event in San Diego, and that is a lightning round of lender questions. I thought this was a pretty good idea at the event, and so what we did is we added a bunch of questions to that lightning round, and rather than you know, allowing the lender who we're going to have on, um, our lender Joe, we thought we'd make him answer the questions really quickly and just get to the point so that you can uh, have some some just quick, snappy, memorable take-home value. You know, a lot of things get lost in details. In fact, I was, well, I do this, I know it's probably not the best use of time, but I was having another debate on Facebook yesterday when I was in Austin, Texas. And, uh, you know, I just won't learn my lessons. A good friend of mine, very uh, a young, young friend, very left-wing, has these silly ideas. I used to have these silly ideas, too, when I was young and didn't know any better. Anyway, he criticized me for posting memes. You know, you know what a meme is? It's that little, it's like a little photo image these spread around pretty virally on social media. Not, you know, really writing a little mini essay. And I said, you know, a lot of times the simple truths are the best. The quick answers the just the simplicity it just cuts through all the bs i don't know if you remember that scene in the movie amadeus you know the movie about mozart mozart was really one of the greats no question i love mozart you know i really almost never listen to classical music anymore yet it is really so good mozart is phenomenal but there's a lot of great music new and old of course Anyway, at the risk of being on another tangent here, anyway, he said, you know, I said, look, a lot of BS 
comes in a lot of words sometimes and just the simplicity of cutting through it with an image and very few words on it really makes a lot more sense. So that's what we do with the lightning round and we're, we're, you're going to see this more often on the show. Maybe actually we should turn the tables and have somebody lightning round question yours truly the guy who does get off on tangents. After I just said all that, I felt like a bit of a hypocrite. (laughs) But um, anyway, whatever. We're all hypocrites a little bit for sure. So we'll get to that in a moment. But first, a couple things to report on, a couple of news stories. (laughs) This one's funny, but it relates to commandment number three. Fruitcake executive punished for wild embezzlement. Yes, this is a newser story. I just saw it yesterday and I just had to share it with you because you know my commandment number three, thou shalt maintain control. And this is not an example really about shareholders, but who knows, this company could have lots of shareholders. We don't know. That's not what the story talks about much. It's just about embezzlement and what happens and what risk you are at when you are one of these investors who does not maintain control in your investments. So you could leave yourself susceptible to the fruitcake executive. (laughs) I know that's kind of funny, but this is a fruitcake company, okay? It says, a former comptroller at Collins Street Bakery in Corsicana, Texas, famous for its fruitcakes, will have to go without as he spends the next 10 years behind bars. Prosecutors say Sandy Jenkins, 66 years old, ran a massive scheme to defraud the bakery and forged 888 checks. Now, why did they just catch him before 889 or... Did he quit? I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of funny. From December 2004 until he was eventually fired in June of 2013. During that time, he embezzled over $16 million from the bakery. This is unbelievable. Like, how could this happen, right? Over $16 million and use that money to bankroll this lavish lifestyle, prosecutors say. And the article goes on care to get a taste of it. You know, they're being funny here. It involved 223 trips on private jets to places like Aspen and Napa, a second home in New Mexico, a new car uh, whenever they needed an oil change. So they didn't even, you know, why go and wait 20, 30 minutes to get an oil change when you can just buy a new car, right? Crazy. $11 million charged on a single black American Express card. Now, you got to wonder, does the credit issuer American Express black card in this case, you know, they invited me to get one of those cards a few years back, and I declined because they couldn't tell me what was so good about it. I think my American Express platinum card is the most overrated, overpriced credit card around. But I got to tell you, now we're on a tangent, aren't we, Jason? Yes, we are. Okay. Keep going a little bit longer. Those airport lounges are the coolest perk. But all of those points I have, almost 1 million points on my Amex card, 
I find them kind of a ripoff to actually use. So I rarely use them for anything because the exchange rate, which by the way, listeners, is an example of what happens in an inflationary environment because your dollar becomes worth less, right? And that's really how these point systems work on these reward cards. Oh my God, we really are getting on a tangent, aren't we, Jason? And what they really show you is the devalue, the debasement of your points. Every time they change the rules or raise the price in their silly little stores, or they try to have you exchange them, they say, well, you can exchange the points for dollars on the card. Well, sure you can, and you can turn those dollars to buy an airline ticket, but the exchange rate stinks. It's awful. What you really want to do is exchange those points for airline miles because those have a pretty good exchange rate where you can buy, you know, a business class ticket to Europe for maybe 120,000 points, right? Or miles, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but otherwise, that same ticket, if you convert it to a dollar price ticket, it's an absolute ripoff. And then, of course, you need to do that because they have so many flipping rules and restrictions and blackout dates and, you know, like one seat available on each plane once a week when they fly, you know, many, many planes every week. It's, it's of course, a ripoff. Of course, all of you listening, I'm sure, have had this experience. It's a bit of a scam, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay, whatever. Anyway, I digress, of course. So... <laughs> The American Express black card, I thought, was outrageously overpriced. I didn't get one. But this guy got one, stealing all this money with his, you know, embezzlement career. Now, think about it. You could have been a shareholder in this fruitcake company, right? And you would have lost money because of this embezzlement. So you leave yourself susceptible when you don't follow commandment number three to all of these levels of risk. And, you know, I think the financial advisor community, and we've had many representatives on talking about that, about, you know, how not to get screwed by your financial advisor, your your guy that wears the nice suit, you know, that works at Merrill Lynch or Ameriprise or Edward Jones, who just got fined for some big scam that they were engaged in, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Search it on the internet. I'm sure you can find it. I don't have the details in front of me. I heard it while I was listening to Rick Edelman's show over the weekend rarely ever listen to terrestrial radio because it's a waste of time with 22 minutes of commercials for every hour of content. Uh, well, 38 minutes of content, 22 minutes of commercials is about the equation there. But uh, I had Rick Edelman on the show as a guest before, and you know you can find that episode if you go to jasonhartman.com and search it. And I like his, by the way, you know, you can look it up on my website at jasonhartman.com or just find the source material that Edelman did with the 10, what is it called? The 10 great reasons to carry a big, long mortgage and never pay it off. And he doesn't even mention really, in any real way at least, the concept of inflation-induced debt destruction that is my big point about that. But he does mention some other really good benefits. So I, I like Edelman, and that's Rick, R-I-C, Edelman. So you can you can find that, but it's it's good material. But see, the financial advisor community in general, and I've had many of them on talking about how to pick the right advisor and all of this kind of stuff. But they're only talking about the front end of the equation, right? They're not talking about all of the layers of the onion that you have to peel back as you go along in the supply chain. You know, they're not talking about, so say you get a great advisor who's honest, who's competent, who's just, 
you know, got the best integrity of the world. But they put you into investments, various funds and so forth, and all those managers could be skimming the profits off the top, ripping off the investors. And then all the companies in which they invest, that those funds invest, another layer, the board of directors, the C-level executives, you know, they've got their hand in the till. And then you might have some employee like the fruitcake bookkeeper who's got his hand in the till, okay? You know, there's just no way you can control all of this stuff. So be a direct investor. You know, we complain that, gosh, you know, our property manager is a problem. That's like one layer, and it's really easy to catch them, by the way. Anyway, you know, you get it. You understand. We've talked about it on many episodes. But just to finish out this article, it's mind-boggling, okay? It says, um, he pleaded guilty to mail fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and making false statements to a financial institution. His wife also pleaded guilty to money laundering. Uh, the money laundering charge was sentenced to five years of probation and 100 hours of community service. You know, the women always get off easier. Now, you know, they, you know, if they were to get divorced, right, wouldn't she get half? Shouldn't she be just as liable? Or is it because he was the one really doing it? because he was on the job and she was just the recipient of this. She's like an accessory after the fact. Isn't that what they call that? Why is it that, you know, you look at Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, you look at any of these like couples that basically commit these financial crimes, or at least, you know, the second tier of the spouse at least gets all the benefits of it, just like the husband does, right? Maybe the husband does it. You know, Bernie Madoff's wife lived this lavish life for many years. Let, I mean, what's her name? Ruth Madoff? I mean, did she go to prison? Did she get sentenced to anything, even community service? Go to a class, learn how not to, learn how to know if your husband is screwing everybody, right? That could be the class. You know, it's like uh, when people get arrested for drunk driving, you know, they have to go to like a class, right? And then pick up garbage along the freeway and all that good stuff uh, and spend a night in, in the drunk tank, you know, in jail. So <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's just one of these things. It's uh, our, our society is inequitable in a lot of ways. But here's the deal. So the woman she had, she has to pay, the couple uh, must also pay $12.7 million in restitution after $4 million in cash and property was recovered, including a $150,000 car, get this, 41 bracelets. I bet none of those were his. I bet they were all her bracelets. 15 pairs of cufflinks, well, admittedly, those were probably all his, okay? 21 pairs of earrings, I bet those were all hers, but, you know, nowadays, guys wear earrings too. But, you know, he was probably a comptroller, conservative type, right? Probably wasn't wearing earrings and bracelets. 16 furs, I bet none of those were his. Maybe he had one fur and she had 15 furs, okay? 61 handbags, <laughs> those were probably all hers. 45 necklaces, probably all hers, nine sets of pearls, 55 rings, 98 watches. I bet a lot of those watches were his. A $50,000 wine collection and a $58,000 Steinway electric piano, reports CNS and CBS Dallas. <laughs> Evidence suggests that this couple was spending $98,000 per month though their legitimate income was $50,000 per year, okay? So that's why I raised the question of, does the issuer of the credit card have any liability? When a guy that is legitimately making $50,000 a year 
gets an American Express black, black card and charges all this stuff? It's kind of an interesting question. Does any of the liability fall on the issuer of credit? Interesting question. Okay, I'll let you ponder that. Under the category of that it's an amazing time to be alive, it is an amazing time to be alive. You always hear me say that. It's my, my trademark quote. It's an amazing time to be alive. Speaking of an amazing time to be alive, U.S. real estate, so desirable around the world. You know I've been on the Financial Survival Network many times as a, uh, a show guest. I'm a monthly commentator on their show. They've been on my show uh, one or two times. Uh, Victoria Steiner, I think is how you pronounce it. I think I've had her on my show. Well, she was on theirs commenting recently about how China, the Chinese government is now making it even easier. And I don't know why they're doing this. There must be a lot of pressure on them to do this. Because if I were in their shoes and wanted to be the you know typical controlling communist party, I wouldn't do this. But they probably just have a lot of pressure. And I don't know the details, but they are now making it easier for their citizens with net worths over $160,000 to buy assets overseas. And they are all, we are looking for a rush, another flood, as if there hasn't already been a big enough flood of Chinese buyers buying up U.S. real estate. Well, supposedly that flood is going to even get bigger in the months and years to come because they are devaluing their currency and their citizens are looking for a safe harbor. And the U.S. has always historically been that Brinks truck. That's the metaphor, the Brinks truck for foreign investors. You look at, you know, Florida is full of European and South American and Central American money. All over the U.S. is full of Chinese and Russian money and Ukrainian money. And, you know, I tell you, we, we have your complaints about the U.S., but when you compare it, and it's all a game of relativity and comparison, you look around the world and just do your comparison. This is the best poorly managed country <laughs> in the world, okay? The best poorly managed country. And uh, I've certainly got my complaints, and I understand them deeply, and I spout off about them all the time, but... You just do that survey around the world and you look at relativity and, uh, and that's what the game is. It's a process of elimination. When people look for places to invest their assets and store their wealth, it is nothing more than a game of elimination. And they just go down the list and they say, look, my country isn't as good as the U.S., Okay, let's eliminate, eliminate, eliminate the choices. And the U.S. looks pretty darn good for these people. So let's get to our lender. But I guess before we do that, Newport, Rhode Island coming up in just a few days. We're looking forward to seeing all of our Venture Alliance members and guests there. We're going to have a great time. You can still get in as a last minute attendee if you want. Go to VentureAllianceMastermind.com. And check that out. You can always come as a guest without being a member. And uh, we're going to have an awesome time there masterminding. We've got a couple of great speakers. One that's going to teach us all about the ins and outs of hard money investing, investing in notes and paper assets. Another one who is going to share his story of how he went from zero to 1,800 units. 
1,800 units in just about four years. It's an amazing story. I've heard it. And uh, he's going to be there sharing that with the Venture Alliance members. So again, this is the elite group of real estate investors. We'd love to have you come as a guest. VentureAllianceMastermind.com, kind of my special group. Of course, coming up, we've got Meet the Masters of Income Property, early 2016. Go to JasonHartman.com, check that out. We've got some great properties, by the way, in Orlando. Oh, and I do have to mention one more thing. We made a mistake which we have done many times. Episode number 565 of the Creating Wealth Show was supposed to be the Orlando market profile. So that episode was replaced. Go listen to episode 565. We're going to replay that uh, in the not too distant future on an upcoming episode here because some people just won't catch it because it doesn't appear as a new episode in your feed, just the mechanics of podcasting. But uh, episode 565, Orlando Market Profile, check it out. Some really good properties there. Go to jasonhartman.com and click on the properties page and you'll see those. Boy, we've got a bunch of other great shows coming up. So uh, stay tuned. Just some really good interviews I've been recording coming up. And again, my intro is going long. I never think it's going to be that way here, but... <laughs> This episode will go a little longer. Here's our lightning round with some quick answers to lending and financing questions. So let's get to that. Here we go. Hey, you know, we get so many questions from all of you great listeners about financing. And financing is obviously a complicated subject, but we all know from listening to the show that I talk about the beautiful power of leverage how the mortgage on your properties is really a huge asset. Most people think of it as a liability, but it's really an asset. And how this mortgage is susceptible to the wonderful process of what I call inflation-induced debt destruction. Inflation-induced debt destruction. And as we talk about this stuff, it raises so many questions about overcoming the hurdles and jumping through the hoops and getting financing on properties. And I know you all have lots of questions, so I brought Joe in, one of our preferred lenders, to talk about some different things. And, and what we're going to do first is we're going to start out with a lightning round. I'm just going to throw quick questions at him. He's going to give you quick answers, and then we're going to dive into another topic. Maybe it'll be calculating debt-to-income ratio, talking about closing costs, or talking about buying down the rate and pricing a mortgage in terms of points versus rate. So let's dive in. Joe, my first question for you. You ready for the lightning round? Yeah, sure. Let's go. Okay, good. Yeah. It's going to be quick. How many properties can I finance and can I finance them all at the same time? Well, you can finance up to 10 properties through Fannie Mae. And yes, with one lender, you can finance them all at the same time if you purchase them all at the same time under, under different contracts. Okay. And that should also, you should say 10 per spouse. So if each spouse can qualify right. for the loan, you can do 10 each, right? Correct. If we have income income for both spouses and they both qualify, we can uh, we can do ten each. Okay, fantastic. So up to twenty on the normal agency loans. Then we got to get creative with with some more special financing, and we've talked about that on other shows. What is the required down payment for each property, and how are the interest rates affected depending on the down payment? So for the first four properties that you have financed, the minimum down payment is twenty percent, and then. Properties 5 through 10 would be a minimum of 25% down. And there's about a quarter point differential in rate between 20% down and 25% down on a 30-year 
you're fixed. Okay, so in other words, if you're willing to put 5% more down, you can get the rate reduced by a quarter point because it's it represents lower risk to the lender, right? Right, it's a stronger file with a larger down payment. Okay, good stuff. And again, personally, if I were getting that loan, I would not put the extra 5% down. I'd rather pay the quarter percent more and have more leverage. But that's a personal decision each of us need to make. Okay, can I finance properties inside of an LLC, inside of an entity? And I know the answer to this, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, not not for residential financing, no. You must find them in, finance them in your individual names with your own income and credit. Good stuff. There are ways that you can deed them over to a single member LLC later. Of course, we've talked about that on the show before. There are some some relatively minor risk in that of due on sale clause problems. But uh, I've even though that's a theoretical problem, I've never seen it happen in actual real life. But again, there are some things you should know we've discussed on other shows. Not time for that here. Is it possible to take one loan out for multiple properties? Some people refer to this as a blanket loan, blanket financing. And when you go over 10 properties for each borrower, you know, I'm talking about spouses that could do 10 each or 10 if you're single. There are companies out there that we've had on the show and we've talked about on the show who do these blanket loans. Do you deal in that kind of stuff at all? Uh, not really as a direct lender to the, to the investors, Fannie and Freddie. Um, we, uh, we would need to have, we would not be able to cross collateralize multiple properties under one loan. No, okay. not residentially. Yeah. So each loan goes with each property in other words, right? Keeping it. Correct. It's the simple standard way. And again, these, the, the stuff we're talking about today, listeners, are the most desirable types of financing with the lowest rates, the longest terms, the maximum leverage. This is the most desirable stuff. You can do more creative stuff with commercial financing, with specialty financing from hedge funds and private equity groups that we've talked about on other shows. Of course, hard money. You can do really creative stuff. But again, what we're talking about is the premium, fantastic low interest rate, really inexpensive financing here, the super desirable stuff that you use for your first 10 properties. So you can't do blanket loans. How is the the borrower's credit score affected by multiple applications on multiple properties? Well, if you have multiple applications with multiple lenders, each lender is going to make an inquiry on your credit score, which can obviously impact the score over time. Um, you know, when I do multiple deals for one client, that credit score is good for 120 days. So at most, I would pull credit, you know, three times in one calendar year for each client. And and each inquiry on that credit report reduces the FICO score, right? Because lenders do not like to see inquiries. It, it, it can it can have an yeah, it can have an impact if you do it like regularly, like okay. every month or so. Good, but, good stuff. Okay, if I finance properties in my own name, can I quick claim them to the LLC? That really goes back to the other question we discussed a moment ago. Did you want to make any additional comments on that besides the ones I made, or, or was that good what I said? No, it's good what you, it's good what you said. There's one the one thing that I've seen is you know if you change the if you change the title into your LLC post closing and change the insurance then the insurance company will um, notify the lender and that due on sale clause could come into effect. And I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of investors miss this important point. Remember, if you do put your properties into an entity like an LLC, could be a corporation, but most people use LLCs for real estate. It's, It's usually better. If you do that, 
don't forget to change your insurance because a different now a different owner owns the property and that's the owner that needs to be insured it's the it's the llc in this example not you personally but of course that's how the lender is going to know that you did the transfer and it could create other problems so this stuff does get kind of complicated that's what we're all here for to help you navigate this and we can refer you to attorneys to dive into this stuff in more detail if you want okay speaking of attorneys we all love attorneys right (laughs) just kidding can i use a power of attorney and this is one of your frequently asked questions i'm not exactly sure what they mean by that question does that mean a power of attorney to go to the closing and this depends what state you're buying in because closings are handled differently in different places is that what they're talking about when they say power of attorney well uh yes to a certain degree like but domestically we can always send a notary uh, anywhere in the country to have you sign the documents but for borrowers who may be out of the country or who may be traveling at the time of closing, uh, a power of attorney may be required for for uh, that person to sign on their behalf. Okay, good. And and they can do that, right? Sure, yes, absolutely. Okay. Do I need an attorney or do I just have the title company close my loan? We never, by the way, want to say don't have an attorney. If you have legal questions about your transaction, you know, we're always just going to say, see an attorney, okay, to get your questions answered. But mechanically speaking, you don't have to have an attorney to go to the title company to close the loan, close the deal, right? Or do you? Uh, yes, not, not not necessarily. It's not really required. Um, some people will have their attorney review the documents in advance before the remote notary shows up for them to sign. So that that can happen as well. Uh, we can email the documents to the uh, client's attorney if they wanted to have him review the paperwork before they sign it. But it, mechanically speaking, it's not really necessary. The notary from the title company will go through all the documents with each uh, customer. Right. Uh, but again, the notary can't handle legal questions and things like that, of Correct. course. Right? Correct. They're just there. But they can explain the yeah. documentation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some of those explanations from notaries are pretty marginal. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to throw that in there. I don't want people to feel too confident with that one. But, you know, yes, if they do it all the time, they've seen them before. Okay. Do I have... Now, this is an interesting one because... Post-Great Recession, I see lenders paying more attention to this. And this is kind of an interesting interesting thing. Do I have to have landlord experience to use the rental income to offset the payment on the mortgage or the debt service on that property? Landlord experience, huh? So lenders are... uh, they're asking for resumes nowadays? No, I mean, not necessarily resumes, <laughs> but, you know, Fannie Mae Direct and Freddie Mac Direct have differing guidelines with regard to, um, you know, customers who are purchasing their, their first investment properties. Um, like Fannie Mae, for example, you do not need to have a two-year landlord experience or history of renting properties out to use the rental income to offset the payment. Whereas with Freddie Mac... If you wanted to use the rental income to offset the payment, you would need to have a two-year history of being uh, a landlord or having uh, rental properties uh, documented on your tax return. Let's talk about credit score. What is the minimum credit score requirement? So for your first four properties, uh, we can finance uh, them with a minimum credit score of 620 or better. Um, but once once you get to properties five through ten, the minimum score there is seven twenty. 
Ah, so so 620, which, uh, you know, that's, that's actually a relatively low score. So you can get your first four properties going. And if you manage those well over a little bit of time, probably even not too much, that can help actually raise your score, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Payment on time, is uh, payment history is crucial to increasing your yeah. score. Yeah, so you actually can see your score go up by borrowing more and owning more properties ultimately because you've showed that you can you can handle that financing and take care of it. 620 for the first four properties and 720 for properties 5 through 10. Can I do cash out refinancing on my investment properties? Yes, you can. And again, there's a caveat to that. Um, you can cash out on investment properties if you have less than four if you have four or less finance properties. But once you go above four finance properties, then uh, cash out refinances on any investment property is, is ineligible. Totally ineligible. No way to do it, huh? So you can refinance them, but you can't refinance them with cash out is what you're saying. Correct. Yes. Okay. That's just, uh, I mean, even if you've owned them for five years and they're going well, I mean, in five years, this will probably all change. But, and you know, and, and I do have to say just in general for all the listeners, this stuff changes. Okay. So, you know, it's all subject to change. Don't take this as the gospel a year from now. <laughs> you know, this may be a totally different set of questions and answers. Do you want to speak to that a little more about the cash out refi? Yeah. Guidelines are always evolving with the agencies. Um, they're constantly updating their guidelines. So they... And when you say agencies, you mean Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Correct. Yes. Um, you know, they will they'll tweak those guidelines all the time to make things more lenient or, you know, stricter in some regard. Okay, if I have 10 investment properties financed, can I also finance later a primary residence in addition to my 10? Yes, you can always finance a primary residence regardless of how many other properties you've got financed. Hmm, okay, because that's a common misconception or that changed one or the other because uh, I always remember that being counted as one of the 10. Oh, it, it's no? counted as one of your 10 properties, but if you have, let's say, 15 properties already financed and wanted to do another primary residence, you could do so. Okay, all right. Any credit score requirements on the primary residence or down payment requirements, or that's really a different ball of wax, right? Yeah, your primary residence has kind of different guidelines with regard to the credit score there. Um, you don't necessarily need to have the 720 score when financing your primary, uh, even if you have more than four finance investment properties. So we always recommend that people keep at least 4% of the portfolio value in cash reserves as a minimum. So in other words, if you have a $1 million portfolio value, you would have $40,000 in the bank to cover contingencies, emergencies, vacancies, whatever. And that's not money that you use for anything else. It's earmarked for the properties. How many months of reserves do people need in terms of the lender's requirements? So particularly with investment property financing, um, you need to have six months reserves on the subject property and uh, six months reserves on all of the other financed investment properties. Um, and one, of course, one month reserve is just one mortgage payment, including your taxes and insurance. So uh, you need to have six times that amount on each property that's financed. And you know what's interesting about that? That, based on today's interest rates, probably works out to just about 4%. <laughs> you know, it's probably not far off, uh, interestingly. So uh, that's, that's I'd, I'd love to do the math on that to really know. Yeah, well, but I, I for example, if, you're, if your total 
principal and interest tax and insurance payment is $1,000 on each property, you would need to have $6,000 in reserves on each property. Right. And that $1,000 uh, of PITI might finance maybe, I don't have anything in front of me, but maybe a $150,000 property, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even more than that. So it's probably about 4%. Interestingly, are the lenders copying me? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Can I use the projected rental income on the property to offset the projected mortgage payment? In other words, am I bringing the rental income that does not exist yet to the table to qualify for financing on a loan that does not exist yet until we close, right? You see, see how that works. Right. So how, how what Fannie Mae allows you to do is take the um, comparable rent market in the in the market that you're purchasing the home in, and uh, use seventy five percent of that average rental market to offset the projected mortgage payment on the property. So the property does not necessarily need to be tenant occupied and leased out for us to use the projected rent in the market to offset the projected payments. Okay. And they impute a 25% hit on that rent though, right? So in other words... Right. 25% vacancy yeah, factor. Yeah. And yeah. that's really conservative, but they've always been that way with income properties. It's been, it's been that way for decades. I mean, decades. I remember years ago it, that, that rule still being there. So basically what they say is if you're receiving $1,000 in rent, they only view it, or actually I should change that. If your projection is that you'll receive, once you own the property and get at least $1,000 per month, they are going to only allow you a credit of $750 per month, a 75% of that projected rental income, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and that goes into calculating your DTI or debt to income ratio, which um, we'll probably, given our time, uh, have to talk about on a future episode. But I, th I think that's a good, interesting topic to dive into on a future show. Did you want to say something about rent loss insurance on that? Because that's another type of insurance that is available to investors. For example, if there was some damage to the property and you had to do a lot of work on the property to bring it back up to par, you might have to move your tenant out and lose rent during that time. So uh, there, there are some insurance policies that cover that rental income loss, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, good segue there. Um, for example, if you're using the projected rental income to offset the projected payment, we would need to have a rent loss policy added to the premium for the homeowner's insurance. Um, because if the tenant were to be... Um, uh, or if the house were vacant, or like you said, if there was damage to the home and the tenant needed to be moved out for a period of time, then you could claim the insurance to help offset the loss of rent. Okay, good. And there's another FAQ here that I wanted to uh, ask you about, but I don't really know what you mean by it. It talks about cash-out refinances and technical refinances. Right, so a delayed financing or a technical refinance is really for those guys that might go out and purchase the property with cash, uh, maybe they need to purchase it quickly and buy it with cash, but yet come back in within six months and then take the cash out, do a cash out refinance to, you know, to leverage the property. Um, so a technical refinance or sometimes called delayed financing 
um, allows you to take cash out of the property if you've purchased it with cash. Um, but you must do that within six months of purchasing the home. Okay, so that's not the same as what we addressed earlier where you said if they have 10 finance properties, there's no cash out refi. If it's done within six months, that's really just a delayed financing rather than a, it's not considered a refinance, right? Right. It's almost, it's almost considered like a purchase. Right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And that's, by the way, listeners, that's one of the things I absolutely, one of the many things that has really helped sustain my love affair with real estate over all these years. <laughs> and that is that you can get your money back out of the asset and still own the asset. I mean, tell me what other what other asset class you can do that with. It's 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 a beautiful 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 thing. Uh so and in this case, it's not going to be all your money out, right? It's going to be 80 or 75%, is that correct? The delayed financing idea? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, up to, up to 75% of the purchase price, correct. Talk to us for a moment about homeowners insurance. I know you're not an insurance person. What type of insurance is out there? There's cash value, replacement cost, and what type of insurance is required to get this really desirable financing? So, Fannie, or the, let's go back to the agencies. They require that we have a replacement cost insurance up to 100% of the loan amount. Okay, so the cash value insurance may be a cheaper policy, but it is not an acceptable form of insurance on these investment properties. We must have the 100% of the loan amount uh, with replacement cost insurance. Okay, so I want to tell the listeners, here's something you're going to love and you're going to hate. If you go listen, you know, we've had many, many clients on the show over the years. But if you go listen to David Porter, who's uh, one of our wonderful clients, who's been on the show a couple of times, you can just go to jasonhartman.com, search David Porter, you can find his episodes and listen to those. And what he talks about the first time he was on the show, and then uh, we recapped on this, I believe the second time he was on a few years later, is he talks about how you know, it's great to buy these properties below replacement cost. But he was slightly upset, but overall very, very happy when um, he bought a property through our network in Indianapolis. He paid, uh, I'm not going to remember these numbers exactly. I'm just very roughly stating them. He paid around $80,000 or something for the property. It was way below the cost of replacement. And the lender required him to get like two hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of insurance on the property. And he said, why is my insurance bill so big? And basically the reason was is because his deal was so good. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is one sort of overbilling scenario where you might be happy to pay because it, it really shows that you got a fantastic deal on the property. In other words, if it burns down the lender will not be able to rebuild the property and protect their collateral for anywhere near the price you, the investor, paid. So that is a beautiful thing, buying below the cost of replacement and experiencing this beautiful concept that I talk about called regression to replacement cost, which I view as different than appreciation. Regression to replacement cost, different than appreciation. So very interesting point there. How many months uh, of reserves are required on, you know, we talked about reserves earlier, on one to four properties and then five 
five to ten. Is, does it vary there, or did you already say that? Um, well, if you've got multiple, if you've got more than four finance properties, you got to have six months reserves on them, um, on each one. Um, but if you've got less than four finance properties, um, it's a little trickier. You've got to have six months reserves on the on the subject property that you're purchasing, but only two months reserves on the other two or three that, with your total being less than four. So in general, I tell folks, if you can document six months reserves on all your investment properties, you know, you're going to be pretty safe there. Good stuff. And it was great to have you speak at our San Diego event recently. We ran through a few of these questions there, but we got in a little more deeply and added more to the list on this interview. So that was valuable for our listeners, I'm sure. We don't have time to talk about some of the other things I really want to get you back on to talk about. I want to talk about calculating debt to income ratios so people can know what they qualify for and take the mystery out of this. I want to talk about mortgage points and how loans are priced in terms of prepaid interest, otherwise known as points, and overall interest rate for the term, potentially 30 years. And I also want to talk about closing cost and how you know what the closing cost should be, how to know if you're being overcharged, how to protect yourself in looking at those closing costs, just having an understanding of it. So we'll have you back to talk about those on a future episode. But is there anything I didn't ask you, just maybe a general comment that you want to share with the listeners before you go? Um, you know, I, I always say to folks, it, it's, it's good to do your due diligence when you're shopping for loans, but uh, be careful about pulling your credit multiple times. Um, you know, shopping for closing costs and shopping for race uh, is a due diligence that, you know, you should do to a certain degree. Um, but um, be careful about pulling your credit with multiple lenders. Okay, good advice, good advice, because that will have the effect of lowering your score. So that's good to know. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Listeners, go check out jasonhartman.com. Contact any of the investment counselors at my company. They will be glad to put you in touch with our lender. You can get all of your questions answered and get financing for your investment properties. So thanks for joining us. We will uh, look forward to talking with you on a future show. Thank you. I've never really thought of Jason as subversive, but I just found out that's what Wall Street considers him to be. Really? Now, how is that possible at all? Simple. Wall Street believes that real estate investors are dangerous to their schemes because the dirty truth about income property is that it actually works in real life. I know. I mean, how many people do you know, not including insiders, who created wealth with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Those options are for people who only want to pretend they're getting ahead. Stocks and other non-direct traded assets are a losing game for most people. The typical scenario is you make a little, you lose a little, and spin your wheels for decades. That's because the corporate crooks running the stock and bond investing game will always see to it that they win. This means, unless you're one of them, you will not win. And unluckily for Wall Street, Jason has a unique ability to make the everyday person understand investing the way it should be. He shows them a world where anything less than a 26% annual return is disappointing. Yep, and that's why Jason offers a one-book set on creating wealth that comes with 20 digital download audios. He shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. 
I like how he teaches you how to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And this set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered for only $197. To get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia Book 1, complete with over 20 hours of audio, go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month, just like a banker, Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.